Greetings, everyone. This is Emery, your host for this season of the First Global Podcast. For today's episode, we have a special STEM leader, Joel Thornton. Make sure to stay tuned so you can hear what advice he has for students pursuing a career in STEM. Joel A. Thornton is a professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle, where he's also the director of the Thornton Lab. He graduated from Dartmouth College with a BA in Chemistry and a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome, Joel, and thank you so much for joining us. So the first question I have for you, um, you're a professor at the University of Washington with research interests in atmospheric chemistry and air pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe a bit of, I guess, first of all, what does that mean? And then what does your day-to-day look like? Um, so yeah, in terms of what does that mean? Uh, well, so being a professor means a lot of different things. Uh, I can explain a little bit more about that, but in terms of my research interests in atmospheric chemistry and air pollution, um, you know, we, we really want to understand the chemistry and the physics of uh, the processes that occur in the atmosphere, which affect air quality. Um, usually uh, in a negative way, we're interested in understanding what enhances air pollution and, and that way we can figure out how to um, improve air quality, but also how more generally how human activities um, from transportation, agriculture, uh, electricity generation, um, land use change generally, how that is altering the composition of the atmosphere, um, leading to degraded air quality, but also affecting climate and how climate and air quality intersect. So we wanna understand and be able to predict um, with that understanding what will happen in the future to air quality and climate by the changes in the atmospheric chemistry and composition. Um, So what does a typical day look like for me? Um, I mean, one of the the enjoyable parts of being a professor is that day-to-day varies quite a bit. Um, It's usually never the same thing, Um, especially can vary over the course of the year, depending on um, what what sort of activities are in in play. So as we, we engage in teaching, uh, as well as research or scholarship, as we call it, um, as well as service to the university. So making the university run on a day-to-day basis is part of the a professor's role, uh, as well as helping the broader scientific enterprise run. So not just the science that happens in my research group, but the science of colleagues around the world, uh, helping evaluate their publications and their grant proposals and, and so on, um, and, and holding conferences and and participating in dialogue to to move the general understanding forward. Um, yeah, so on a typical day, I guess there isn't really one typical day, but often you know, I'll spend time teaching um, and mentoring undergraduate and graduate students. Um, so that might be preparing and giving a lecture for a class uh, that you know, some students are either required to take or they're taking it because they're interested in the topic or a meeting uh, individually or with uh, a few graduate students who are doing doctoral research projects under my guidance. Um, And so they're providing me updates and discussing the meaning of results that they've obtained in an experiment, Um, or I'm helping them build or operate an instrument or 
um, develop computer code that they need to conduct their research, um, or I might be editing their application. Uh, and then I might, that might be like, you know, half a day or something like that. And I might have a few meetings with colleagues um, at my university or at other institutions really around the world these days um, to plan or uh, evaluate our collaborative research projects that we are engaged in together, where we might be trying to measure or simulate what's happening in the atmosphere uh, at some location or during some time period. Um, and then depending on you know, the, the time of year, I might be writing a research grant proposal to um, compete for research funding, to, to provide funding for uh, the students and um, lab assistants who work in my group to do research. Um, and, or I might be tasked uh, by a funding agency to evaluate some other colleagues' research proposal. Um, or a scientific journal to evaluate a, a paper that is trying to be published through what we call the peer review process. Um, and then finally, yeah, that, so that might be another quarter of my day. And then I might have a meeting with um, my university colleagues to discuss yeah, some aspect of running the university, such as how should we update our admissions process or which courses should we offer next year? Um, or how do we engage with this community partner uh, on some scientific question that they need addressed and, and so on. So it's, it's a range of um, you know, meetings and writing and evaluating other people's uh, projects um, and teaching students and mentoring them. It's a kind of a, a large combination of what we do uh, as professors. Yeah, that honestly sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. never bored. You're never bored. <laughs> yeah, you don't have time to be <laughs> That's bored. That's for sure. Um, another part of your position, or maybe a um, better way to phrase it, one of your projects is called the Thornton Lab. Um, can you describe your work at the Thornton Lab? Yeah, so as I mentioned, you know, we really want to understand what's happening in the atmosphere. So, uh, and what is in the atmosphere? How is it changing? So what are the chemical compounds in the atmosphere, um, especially the ones that are um, what we call trace compounds or reactive compounds? These are often important in controlling how the atmosphere cleanses itself and how uh, pollutants are actually formed in the atmosphere. Um, and then, of course, how human activities are changing those the amounts of those chemical species or, or the processes that they undergo. Um, and we have a focus on, you know, trying to understand specifically what controls atmospheric particulate matter. Uh, so these are, um, you might have heard of PM 2.5 or particulate matter less than two and a half microns in size, especially if you were in, um, exposed to some wildfire smoke this summer, for example. Uh, so that's uh, PM 2.5 is a major component of air, air pollution um, that gets deep into our lungs and causes uh, negative health effects. Um, both acute and long-term, but they also play a really important role in the climate system. So they alter how much sunlight is getting into the Earth's surface. So they, they impact the temperature of the Earth's surface, they impact uh, ecosystem and uh, crop productivity. They also are what form cloud droplets and therefore they affect um, uh, the, the amount of cloud, how long clouds last, and as well as even lightning that occurs in thunderstorm clouds. 
Um, and so we, we've been really trying to focus on how to understand what makes those particles, how long those particles last and, and what they do. Um, so to, to kind of answer those questions, um, we, in my lab, probably have um, a majority of our emphasis is designing and building and using uh, instrumentation, uh, such as chemical sensors that uh, help us diagnose what's, um, what, what type of chemistry is happening and how, how particles are being made in, in the atmosphere or growing or shrinking and so on. Um, and uh, so a student might um, be designing a module for uh, a chemical sensor that we have to detect a new or previously unmeasured chemical compound in the atmosphere that contributes to the growth of particulate matter. Um, or uh, we will also then deploy that instrumentation. Um, so we don't just design and build it, we wanna use it to understand what's in the atmosphere. So then we will conduct real world experiments taking that instrument or instruments uh, and putting them on aircraft so that we can fly throughout the atmosphere and measure what's going on throughout the atmosphere, or we put it on ships or tall towers so that we can sample, again, um, some specific ecosystem or the interaction of the atmosphere with the ocean. Um, and then the student might then therefore spend months trying to engineer the instrument so that it doesn't just work in a nice air conditioned laboratory, but it you know, works also in these harsh conditions like on a plane at 20,000 feet or uh, on top of a mountain or on a ship that's bouncing up and down on the waves that are 20 feet high or something in the North Atlantic um, and still able to take good high quality uh, observations. Um, so then uh, once we have these observations, we want to Try, we want to use them to make discoveries about how the atmosphere is working and, and to test. To do that, we basically test our current understanding. So we say, okay, we know these reactions happen. We know these chemical species come from the ocean or they come from trees or they come from coal-fired power plants and the winds are blowing this way or that way. And here are the chemical reactions that might change it. What do we predict this to look like? And you know, when the predictions don't match what we observe, that's usually a sign that we're about to learn something new. Uh, and so we'll do simulations like that using computers to you know, simulate what we think we should be seeing. And then we compare that to what we've measured in the atmosphere. And then from that, we create hypotheses or um, develop conclusions that say, this is the way the atmosphere must be working, or this new compound must exist because otherwise we wouldn't see what we're seeing here. Uh, and then uh, we've developed a new, um, a new understanding of of the earth in, in the atmosphere and how it works. Um, I should also say that we, we don't just use our own instrumentations. We often make use of um, instrumentation that is on satellites, for example, that can measure the properties of clouds or they can count the number of lightning flashes that are occurring, or they can, they can measure how hazy the atmosphere is um, by looking at how much sunlight gets through the atmosphere or bounces back. Uh, and so we, these are operated by, um, basically uh, federal laboratories like NASA or uh, NOAA. I don't know if you've heard of these agencies before. But so NASA, maybe you've probably heard of. Um, and NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, so they, they often, they have the National Weather Services underneath NOAA. And so they have a lot of weather satellites, but they also have satellites that can measure how many fires there are in any location. And they can measure wildfire smoke or 
particulate matter from pollution. So we make use of those as well when we're trying to integrate our observations. So that's a lot of data analysis that goes on in our laboratory um, using earth data basically to um, try to constrain what's, what else is going on uh, in the world that might influence our own particular um, area or process that we're interested in. Um, so yeah, so students will often be doing a lot of, uh, even though they might spend some time say on a ship or on an airplane uh, or on, a, on an island making measurements, um, they'll then spend way more time looking at data to try to understand what it all means. Right? Um, and so that's often what's going on in our laboratory is actually data analysis um, using um, computer codes to process satellite imagery or, um, or the chemical sensor uh, measurements that we've made um, in these different locations. Yeah, so you, oh, yeah, so you, oh. No, go ahead. I know it's hard to, if I could add anything else, but yeah. Okay, so when you talked about like, um, you make these predictions and sometimes like um, they're incorrect and you're about to discover something new. Um, I wanted to ask you, could you give an example of one of your maybe recent or past research breakthroughs? Um, yes, uh, I mean, those are the, really the, the funnest part of all of this is when, when you make that discovery, there's something very special about the, very satisfying about discovering something new that, that others haven't noticed or um, you know, haven't been able to measure before or haven't, haven't thought to measure before or, or didn't realize the process worked that way. So that, that's really what I think gets most scientists up in the morning is this possibility that they're gonna discover something that no one else has really seen before. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, for me, it's hard. And I don't have favorite discoveries. I think I like them all, <laughs> um, but uh, I would have to say, you know, recently um, we, we found out that uh, lightning in thunderstorms that are occurring um, over regions where lots of large cargo ships and tanker ships are traveling. So for example, from the Persian Gulf to Singapore and from Singapore up to China, uh, these are very busy, what we call trading lanes or shipping lanes. And um, if, you, if you measure how much lightning is occurring, you find that over these shipping lanes, maybe two to three times more lightning occurs because the ships are emitting particles into the atmosphere that change the nature of the thunderstorm and enhance it and cause it to have more lightning. Um, and, and so we think this has implications for how humans might have altered lightning uh, from the pre-industrial era that we might be having more lightning because we've uh, increased the number of particles in the atmosphere. And so in some ways we've, we've really altered something that is Power, very powerful in the atmosphere, um, a lightning strike, and it actually has important uh, implications for uh, climate because lightning alters um, the chemical composition of the atmosphere and its cleansing ability, especially at high altitudes. So finding that very clear, distinct, you know, it's very clear signal that this can only be caused by ships uh, because the, the lightning enhancement was sitting right over where all the ships are traveling. Um, that was a, a fun discovery to make and uh, not something that we've gone looking for. We have been trying to understand lightning patterns, but we didn't think that we should look for lightning being enhanced over, you know, over where these ships were. So it was a little bit serendipitous, um, as we say. And, and I certainly didn't write a proposal to go do that, although I, I have followed up and written a grant proposal to continue studying that 
but it's one of those things where sometimes the best discoveries were the, uh, of course, the ones that you, you had no expectations of finding, right? Um, let's see, I also um, helped unravel how volatile organic compounds, um, these are, you might see these labeled on, um, you know, a can of paint or something you buy that says VOC free or, um, uh, so trees emit a lot of VOCs to the atmosphere. Um, these are the, the smells you can, uh, you, you, like the pine smell walking through a pine forest or uh, when you have a, uh, a tree inside your house, if you break a branch off, you can smell these volatile compounds, the perfume scents basically are VOCs. They emit large quantities of them because they attract pollinators or they communicate uh, some sort of pest infestation or some wounding event. So there's many reasons that they emit them, but um, turns out once they're in the atmosphere, they react very quickly. And we uh, figured out how it is that they, that these molecules, when they're in the atmosphere, they transform not from vapors into these little um, hard bits of particles that actually affect the amount of sunlight and clouds. So trees are part of the climate system through a somewhat invisible way, not, not only taking carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but actually altering the amount of sunlight that uh, gets to the Earth's surface because of these particles that form. Um, that, yeah, that was fun. And then uh, let's see what else. I also uh, found that chemical reactions that occur on sea spray droplets, um, these are little bits of the ocean that get into the atmosphere. These can uh, actually amplify um, air pollution formation in urban areas. So they can amplify urban smog formation when they are present. So a place like Los Angeles has a lot of uh, sea spray get blown into it um, from the Pacific Ocean. And that actually makes the urban smog in Los Angeles worse than it would otherwise be. Um, so that was also a fun discovery. Was this chemistry that we didn't think would happen outside of the ocean regions that actually happens inland in these urban areas as well. Um, yeah, I know those are just a few examples of things we found. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I loved hearing about it and some of like the examples that you gave um, and what it looks like as well. Um, you touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to hear what or hear a little bit more about what inspires you about your job. Um, yeah, so I think maybe referring to this discovery of being, yeah, it's really engaging and maybe even some would call it addictive. <laughs> um, uh, that, you know, it, like I said, it's, it's very satisfying and rewarding to discover some uh, new understanding of how the world is working that no one else has done before. Um, you know, part of that is because, you know, science builds on itself. So, of course, they couldn't have done it 10 years ago because something didn't exist until five years ago. And so then we were able to make use of that to discover something that couldn't be discovered. So it's always building on itself. And so it's really refreshing in that way. Um, but, um, you know, knowing also that this discovery in, in, in this particular case about the Earth that we live on, the atmosphere, the air we breathe, may have implications for improving air quality and predicting future climate, which is important for society. So that, that, that also is a really important inspiration for me specifically about the work I do uh, and the science I specifically do. Um, but you, know, you can do discovery in, in, in many different science fields. Um, so so that, that is really uh, inspiring, I think, generally for most scientists. But I like the fact that mine connects to um, to air quality and, and climate. Um, 
and, and understanding the like forests and trees around me and so on, what they're doing to the atmosphere is something that I am fascinated by. Um, so, but also, you know, sharing that process of discovery with, with students, so either in the classroom or um, through mentoring graduate students in their own journey to discovery when they're doing their doctoral research, you know, and training them in the scientific endeavor and, and to, so that they go on and make their own discoveries is, you know, probably the part I'm most passionate about is, is, is really training and developing the next generation of scientists as a professor. Um, that's really one of our main roles. And, um, you know, see, seeing students come in with, you know, relatively little um, understanding of how to do science to then graduate, you know, a few years later with a doctoral thesis where they've conducted a whole series of experiments or research and developed their own understanding, their own discoveries um, uh, is really rewarding. And, you know, the more students I have, essentially the, the more I get to, um, in, you know, enjoy the discoveries through them, right? Uh, so uh, it's a, that part is really important and um, inspiring seeing, seeing them succeed. Yeah, I love that. Um, and especially it's just like, it's so great to hear about all these things because I'm also interested in maybe going into academia. Um, mm -hmm. I myself am not majoring in a STEM field, but um, I do love to hear about that. Uh, there's more than STEM at the university, yes. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, so I think a lot of the times when people think about STEM, um, they often think about maybe like the technology and engineering section of things and maybe then focus on like robotics and building things, maybe more mm -hmm. physically seemingly in order to solve problems. But as a scientist or, you know, a chemist, how would you describe STEM and the opportunities it holds considering the work that you do? Yeah, so I think there's several facets of um, you know, STEM, like you, like you mentioned, there's definitely, you know, this, this sort of engineering technology part of it. So, you know, by being in STEM, you are probably um, understanding uh, the, the cutting edge of, of technology and um, maybe even how it works or where it might be going in the future. So it, you, you get um, sort of a, a deeper understanding of, of the way the world might be transformed by coming technologies. Um, and I think in terms of opportunities, so you're going to be immersed in that sort of um, advanced capabilities um, and uh, shifts in culture that's, you know, come with, with shifts in technology, for example, or, or new understanding. I mean, these vaccines are a perfect example of, of science. And then understanding something about, say, the climate system, you know, from my point of view, or, or air quality, you're, you're involved in putting fundamental knowledge and understanding as the basis for what society should do to solve the problem, right? And, and so science and engineering are basically work together that way, right? Where science is trying to understand the, the fundamentals of what's actually going on, and then engineering leverages that understanding to solve you know, the problems that are happening in the real world um, by through technology or or other means and um, social engineering as well right and, and developing the appropriate cultural practices or so on to to avoid disease or or to 
um, reduce our carbon footprints and so we wouldn't be doing talking about these things if we didn't know from scientific studies that they were important um, and towards the way the world could work in a better way for um, for humans. So, uh, you know, I think that th those are sort of uh, not so much opportunities. I guess I, you know there are lots of different types of opportunities. Right, there's opportunities for sort of self knowledge and fulfillment, and as well as um, you know opportunities for jobs and careers. Right. So, and when you go through a STEM program um, because you're so connected to technology and that um, there's a lot of technology being used in the private world there's you know quite a few career opportunities well-paying jobs through stem um, fields that you don't necessarily end up going to academia uh, to be a professor but that those skills are highly sought after so knowing how to code computers or control complex systems with computers or to use computers to uh, mine data to find you know, important patterns. Um, these are, of course, very, very much part of science um, and engineering, uh, but are also now very much part of the modern world in general. Um, and so there's that aspect of opportunity um, in, through STEM as well. Um, let's see, yeah, so I, I think I think basically, you know, ultimately, science and then you know what stems from it, um, you know, the language of mathematics and and you know the extension to engineering to solve these, to solve problems based on scientific methods. Learning STEM is <clears throat> learning the scientific method, and learning it's basically a way of thinking about the natural world and, and our place in it and how to understand it objectively, right? Um, as best as we can do that objectively. So um, it, it, you know, philosophically speaking, it's also, it's a way of approaching the world um, and interacting with the world. Um, and, I, and I think, yeah, certainly I didn't appreciate any of that uh, when I was taking my first calculus class or whatever, you know, but um, ultimately it does, um, it does seep into you that this this way of thinking about the world and approaching problems, even at home in my kitchen, or, or uh, yeah, or or um, when we're trying to think about uh, the, what ships are doing to Earth's atmosphere. So. Yeah, thank you for that answer. I really enjoyed how like holistic it really is, you know, with how like science and you know technology and everything is actually like can be very interrelated and the skills mm -hmm. that you learn can be applied in many different ways. Yeah. Um, so the last question I have for you um, is going out very much to our audience. A lot of our audience includes young students who are interested in a career in STEM. So what advice do you have for students who might be considering a career path that maybe is similar to you or is just in the field of STEM? Mm -hmm. um, well, I guess the first one is stick with it, like, uh, and don't be shy uh, when you need help because actually STEM can be really challenging, um, and you should not expect to have it come easily to you. It didn't necessarily come easily to me. Um, I had to work hard to understand some things. Not all the concepts made sense the first time, and it can be really frustrating, you know, when you're not able to grasp something that maybe somebody else is grasping in the class but you're not um or you know and that that 
you should really just um, develop the right mindset um, that I don't understand this yet, right? Or this is what we try to teach uh, young children is that you will be able to understand it eventually. And it's okay if you don't understand it now, but you have to keep working at it. And I, I, I see a lot of students early on get a little frustrated that they don't understand something right away. And that can turn them off from STEM because some, some parts of STEM just don't connect you know, right away individually. And it can be very in, um, selective where you might understand something about STEM really well that somebody else doesn't, and they might understand something really well that's different from this that you don't understand. And you just kind of have to find your way a little bit through that process um, and keep track of what it is you've, you're finding that you're skilled at and what you understand best um, and what connects with you really. Um, and keep those in mind and don't worry if there's this one bad calculus class that you didn't do well in or you didn't do well in electricity and magnetism that quarter. And uh, if, because if you're interested and passionate about doing science and thinking about science or learning about something the way the world works, you, you have to, it takes persistence and, um, and trusting yourself that that is really something that you want to do. And it will, you know, it, it can happen for you that way as long as you work, you know, work towards it. And, try to resist the temptation to just give up and do something else if it's what you're interested in. Um, yeah, because lots of people, everybody struggles with parts of the, the coursework or the, the act of doing an experiment. Sometimes it doesn't work and you have to start over. Kind of embracing that mindset that failure is okay. It's how I'm gonna learn and I'm gonna do this better tomorrow, right? Um, it's amazing how important that sort of mindset is to, to succeeding in, especially in a research field where like me, I'm doing research where our entire goal is to understand something that no one understands yet, right? So you can't, you, you, you can't uh, get down on failing to understand because you know, this prediction didn't work. And so now what do we do? Well, we have to figure out a new way to do it, right? And be um, resilient and adaptive to, to the situation. So a lot of it, I would say my advice is to start working on your mindset. It doesn't come easily at first, but um, you know, if you like it now, like if you're interested in it now and you like STEM now, I can guarantee you if you stick with it, you will like it even more um, in the future because the more you learn about it, the more fascinating it becomes. And I've never really, I've never been more fascinated with how the natural world works than I am right now because every day I'm learning something new about how it works and it's just totally crazy how, <laughs> how many little intricate things come together to make something like you know, a rainbow or, or a thunderstorm or a flash of lightning and what that lightning does and what it triggers downstream um, you know, 10 years from now. Um, yeah, it's all so fascinating that if you really do like it now, you're gonna like it in the future too, if you, if you can stick with it. So um, yeah, I guess that's my, my biggest piece of advice. Thank you, Joel, for being a part of this interview, and thank you all for tuning in. This is actually our last episode for the 2021 First Global Challenge. We're super grateful to all of those who shared their experiences with us throughout the season, and to all of you who tuned into this journey of discovery and recovery. Until next time.